Our scripture reading today is from 1 Kings 21, 1 through 3. And this is found on page 303 in your pew Bible. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Megan. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and I'm glad that each one of you is here this morning, especially if you're newer. Thanks for being with us. I know um, exploring a new church home uh, or just visiting a church for the first time is not always an easy thing to do. So thanks for doing that, being with us this morning. We're really glad that you're here. And as we take uh, some time now to look at this passage um, that Megan read part of for us, I want to begin that time by just asking uh, God to be with us and to help us in that. And so I'd like to start with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have preserved it for us. And I ask now that as we study it together, that you, by the power of your spirit, would help us to know how we should respond as your people and give us the strength and the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1921, and Molly Burkhart was afraid. And she had good reason to be afraid. See, Molly was a member of the Osage Indian nation. Her people had been pushed off their land time and time again. And finally, they were confined to an unwanted corner of Oklahoma where it was hoped that they would be forgotten, which they were, until oil was discovered on that patch of land. And suddenly the forgotten and unwanted Osage people were now the richest per capita people in the world. And Molly was one of them. And she was afraid. She was afraid because her sister had just been murdered. Molly's sister, Anna, was one of the first to be murdered. Molly's entire community was gripped with terror in a time period called the Reign of Terror because by 1923, over two dozen Osage people, Molly's family, her tribe's people and friends, had been murdered. Some had died slowly and agonizing of, agonizingly of poisoning. Others had been found shot, still others died when their homes were bombed into oblivion. All in an attempt by powerful and corrupt people to obtain the Osage tribe's oil wealth. And the heart-wrenching and shocking story is told vividly by author David Grant in his best-selling book, The Killers of the Flower Moon. And in the book, David reveals that the extent of the Osage murders was greater than anyone at the time even began to imagine. And those responsible were so well protected by corrupt and weak law enforcement and court systems that a brand new division of government that had just been, been begun, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was called in to help make headway in uncovering the sinister plot against Molly and her family and her people. 
And through this page-turning account of these events, which I highly recommend, David Graham makes one thing is true of his readers, and that is that they will not soon forget the name Molly Burkhardt. That they will not soon shake the feeling that a great injustice has been left largely unjudged. And the same is true of the author in this account in 1 Kings chapter 21. By the end of the chapter, we will not soon forget the name Naboth. His name is used 17 times in this chapter. And we will not soon forget the great need for God to be judged. Because you see, Molly Burkhardt and Naboth are separated by thousands of years and thousands of miles by culture and language, and yet their stories are profoundly connected. This morning, as we look at Naboth's story, we will pause along the way way to make observations about how this story connects with us today. Because at Christ Community, not only do we believe that the Bible faithfully preserves and is the inspired Word of God that faithfully tells us about the past, but we believe it contains profound wisdom and insight for the modern world. So let me tell you about Naboth this morning. You would have loved Naboth. And, and if you did happen to resent Naboth, it would only be because you were, you were jealous of his goodness. And, and by goodness, I don't mean sort of a Ned Flanders kind of annoying goodness. I mean a sort of goodness that just does the right thing and seems to enjoy life while doing it. Uh, Naboth was the kind of neighbor you'd, you'd trust your house keys with or that you'd call to pick up your kids after school if you got stuck in a meeting at work. He ran a neighborhood small business, uh, a little vineyard that had been in the family for generations. And though it probably wasn't anything particularly special or outstanding as far as vineyards go, it was in a great location. So great, in fact, that King Ahab's family had built a palace in the same area. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you can actually visit the site where this archaeological uh, site is at. And it's not hard to see why you'd want a summer home there, which is basically what Ahab's palace there was. It it wasn't the capital, that was in Samaria, that's where the main palace was, but Jezreel was sort of like a Camp David. And this is going to be a problem for Naboth. Listen to the opening verses of 1 Kings 21 again. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. So Ahab, he he wants to expand his home, add some new gardens. So he goes to Naboth and wants to make a deal to acquire his vineyard. But Naboth, he isn't interested. And this is where we see Naboth's goodness on display. Because at one level, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Naboth, an opportunity to acquire more or better land or to acquire a significant amount of dollars here. But he doesn't take it. And notice that he doesn't just say, I'm not interested Naboth says, I 
I can't do this. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, forbids this. Why? Well, because according to Israelite law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the land all belongs to God. And when it was allocated to these tribes and to these families, it was to remain with that family as an inheritance forever. There was even a whole set of provisions that, that if the land did need to be sold, in order for a family to survive in a time of difficulty and financial hardship, that in what was called the year of Jubilee, all the land was supposed to be returned to its family of origins. That was supposed to happen every 50 years. And in this moment, Naboth's not in any financial hardship. He doesn't need to sell the land. There isn't any reason under the law that he could or should sell or give up his land. It's the inheritance of his fathers, of his family. And he can't sell. Yahweh forbids it. Are you beginning to see what I mean by Naboth's goodness? And he's that kind of a guy. Ahab isn't. And if we've learned anything about Ahab this summer, it's that he's not particularly interested in obeying Yahweh, and those who are always seem to be getting in his way, keeping him from getting what he wants. He's getting tired of it. So he leaves this conversation with Naboth angry and resentful, and he climbs the stairs to his bedroom, and he refuses to eat. He's that upset. Jezebel, the queen, Ahab's wife, she hears the door slam and she goes to see what's wrong. She finds her husband laying on his bed, unable to eat. He's so upset and she asks, what's wrong? And he recounts the story and, and she's stunned. But, but she's not stunned at Naboth's refusal. She's stunned at Ahab's inaction. Look at verse 7. I mean, she's annoyed, almost a little embarrassed by him. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. The message, a paraphrase of the Bible, it captures the sense of this perfectly. Jezebel said, Is this any way for the king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? On your feet, eat, cheer up. I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for you. So Jezebel, wonderful woman that she is, um, she doesn't have time or patience for Ahab's pity party. She says, you know, don't worry, baby. I'll, I'll get this done for you. And so she devises a plan worthy of Claire Underwood. And in verse 8, she reveals the plan. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city and she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Now, a king would proclaim a fast 
when there was a sense that, that someone in the community had committed a great evil and that the community needed to ask God for forgiveness to avoid judgment. The irony is so thick at this moment in the story. The fast is commenced, and Naboth, as a good community member, is there. They even put him in a prominent place at the gathering. And before Naboth knows what's happening, though, before he can even begin to take it in, two worthless men stand up and start to accuse him. They accuse him of two great evils, of blaspheming, cursing, rejecting God, and of cursing the king. In other words, they accuse him of treason religiously and politically. The crowd gathered who was all in on the plot immediately grabbed Naboth and dragged him struggling and panicked outside the city where without mercy rocks are thrown at him until bloodied and mangled he dies. Word is sent back to Claire, I mean Jezebel, that her orders have been completed. And with glee, she finds Ahab and says, Naboth is dead, dear. The vineyard's all yours. Enjoy. And Ahab, delighted, runs down to the vineyard and begins making plans for his new garden. And this is where we need to stop and pause and make our first observation in the story. And one thing that we can't miss as we walk through this account is that we must be aware of power and how it can be abused. See, Naboth is a victim of power that has been abused. And while we're regularly warned in the context of the local church especially about the dangers of money and sex, how those good things can corrupt and consume us if we aren't careful, I think we are far less often warned about the dangers of power. You see, power, like money and sex, uh, is not in and of itself a bad thing. But wielded wrongly can cause devastating harm to us and to others. You see, we have been given power by God for the good of others. See, power goes wrong when we use it selfishly for our own ends and advancement. So the question with power is always this. Who is flourishing because I have power? Who is flourishing because you have power? Is it me only or me primarily? Or are others flourishing? And one of the greatest dangers of power is that we often don't recognize that we have it. And so we aren't even aware of how we're using it or misusing it. Yet every single one of us created in the image of God has power. Kids, you have power. You have power over your siblings. Maybe you're stronger or older or smarter than they are. You have power with your friends. Again, maybe you're older than them or stronger than them or smarter than them or better at something than them. Are you using your power to help them or to hurt them? Adults, you have power. 
power in your homes, in your relationships, in your workplaces, in your vocations. Uh, we exercise power in, in when and where and how we spend our money, in who we spend time with and who we don't. And let me emphasize again, power is not bad. And the goal is not to get rid of power. Rather, the goal is to see the power that we have been entrusted with, to be aware of it, so often we aren't, and then use it for the flourishing of others, especially the vulnerable. As we return to the story, even though Naboth is dead, he's been murdered, his story is not over. No, his name continues to echo through the narrative. I mentioned at the beginning that his name is used 17 times in this chapter. Six of those are after he's been murdered. One scholar described it this way, Naboth haunts the scene like a ghost that will not be laid to rest. And how can there be justice for Naboth? When those entrusted with pursuing justice, the king and queen, the elders, the community leaders, are responsible for his death. All of them have turned a blind eye or been directly complicit in this murder. But Yahweh always sees. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And we say, yes, absolutely. And Yahweh, he will not let Naboth be forgotten. There will be justice for Naboth. And so Elijah, the, the main character that we've been following all throughout the summer, a prophet, a spokesperson for God against the evil leaders of God's people, he goes and does what he does best. He confronts Ahab. And Ahab, or Elijah, he strolls into the vineyard, into Naboth's vineyard, where Ahab is making plans to have the vines ripped out and vegetables planted. Which, by the way, I mean, vegetables? Really? I mean, the fact that Ahab is turning this place that used to produce delicious wine into a place to grow broccoli is reason enough for judgment <laughs> in my mind. And Ahab sees Elijah and says, verse 20, have you found me, O oh, my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. Finally, finally God is bringing judgment on Ahab and his evil wife. Finally, justice is being done. It's what we long for. It's what the author wants us to long for by the time we get to this point in the story. Longs for us. We, we want, we ought to be thankful for God's judgment. 
This is our second observation this morning. And yet in our cultural context, when we hear the words God and judgment together, we, I think, are immediately wary. I don't want a God who judges. But this is typically the mindset of people who have suffered very little injustice. You see, those who have suffered the kind of injustice that Molly Burkhart did, that Naboth did, they are thankful for and long for God's judgment against those who have committed so much wrong against them and their families. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who directs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, puts the truth of God's justice and judgment in such powerful perspective. He writes this, he says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. Volf himself witnessed the devastation of the wars in Bosnia And he writes, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. We should be thankful for God's judgment. And while we should never take the place of God in seeking vengeance, we must heed God's many commands in Scripture to work for justice for those who are oppressed. The author will not let us forget Naboth. And we must not forget those in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and in our world who suffer like him. In anticipation of God's justice, And judgment, we must work for justice in our world. Through your generosity to this local church, men and women, children throughout the city and across the world who are suffering often as the direct result of injustice are being served and cared for. Additionally, there are great organizations like the International Justice Mission, which works tirelessly to obtain justice for people around the world who have been denied it often in developing countries ruled by leaders not unlike Ahab. And so after Elijah announces this judgment on Ahab and Jezebel, the author gives us an editorial comment, a bookend to the comment that he gave us at the very beginning of this story, all the way back in chapter 16, when we're first introduced to Ahab, the author tells us in verses 25 and 26 that there was no one like Ahab when it came to the evil he had done. He really is as bad as he seems. The judgment that God has announced is just. But then in a surprising turn, we read in verses 27 through 29 that when Ahab heard this announcement of judgment against him and his family, that he humbled himself. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, a sign of mourning and penitence. He actually shows that he's sorry for what he's done. And God responds to that sorrow and humility, not by taking the judgment away, but by delaying the worst of it until after his death. Once again, God's prodigious mercy is on display. 
But make no mistake, God in His mercy delays His judgment on Ahab. But the delay is only temporary. God delivers the judgment just as He promised. This is the end of Ahab, the end of Jezebel, the end of their house, their family. The end of 1 Kings chapter 22, Ahab is killed in battle, and the dogs do lick up his blood just as they did Naboth's. And in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jezebel meets her own violent end, and Ahab's dynasty is utterly ended never to be restored. Which brings us to our next observation, and that is, yes, we should be thankful for judgment, but we should also fear it. You see, individually and collectively, we deserve judgment. Every one of us fails to live up not only to to God's standards of justice and love and mercy and selflessness, we even fail to live up to our own standards. We are incensed when someone cuts us off in traffic. But when we're in a hurry or feeling a little ticked, we readily cut off others. We, we teach our children that they shouldn't yell at each other, and then we scream at them to stop yelling. Francis Schaeffer, who was a Christian thinker and cultural critic from last generation, uh, once pointed out that if we simply wore a tape recorder around our neck that just recorded every time we said someone should or shouldn't do something. And then that standard of what we said people should and shouldn't do is applied to our own life, that that all of us fail. We don't even live up to our own standards that we, we say other people should do how they should live. See, we all have a fatal flaw that sends shrapnel into our own lives and the lives of anyone who would dare to be near to us, to love us, to care for us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Be sure there is something inside of you which, unless it is altered, will put it out of God's power to prevent your being eternally miserable. While that something remains, there can be no heaven for you, just as there can be no sweet smells for a man with a cold in the nose and no music for a man who is deaf. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which itself will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. To not fear this, to fear what we know to be inside of us, is the height of foolishness. And if we were simply to end here this morning, we would have missed the final and most glorious observation of this story. But we're not going to end here because there is one more observation and that is that you can be free from judgment. Because you see, there is a true and better Naboth and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Naboth. You see, Jesus wasn't just a a good man He was a perfect man, the God-man. He's the only truly innocent person who has ever lived. And like Naboth, Jesus is also falsely accused by wicked men of blaspheming God and of starting a rebellion against the king, against the government of Rome. And Jesus, like Naboth, is taken outside the city and murdered. 
But unlike Naboth, Jesus' shed blood outside the city on the cross cries out not for our judgment, but for our forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus secures mercy for even the worst oppressor, even for me, even for you, if we will simply turn to Him in faith and obedience. You see, judgment is coming to the world and to our lives. The question is, where will we find ourselves when it comes? Will it be in the shadow of the cross of Christ who absorbed the full judgment of God on our behalf, leaving nothing for us to face? Or will we be left on our own to face what we deserve in its entirety? Yes, we should be thankful. Yes, we should be afraid of judgment. But thanks be to God, through faith in Christ, we can also be free of judgment. Where will you be found? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you reveal to us those places in our lives where we have abused or misused power that perhaps we didn't even realize we had? Would you make us a community of people who work tirelessly to see the vulnerable flourish? Would you make us a people who is deeply and forever grateful that we are free from judgment because of the sacrifice of our great Savior, Jesus Christ? In Jesus' name we pray.